0: Michael Horton uh, is the editor-in-chief of the magazine uh, Modern Reformation, and he's the host of a radio program called White Horse Inn. And he uh, is also a professor at Westminster, California, and he loves to say, the most important thing in the church today is to help Christians know what they believe and why they believe it. To know what they believe and why they believe it. And I think we saw the reason for such a statement in the video that we just watched. Most people can't articulate what they believe. And if they're unsure about what they believe, then they will have a very hard time knowing why they believe it. And you know, you might think, well, we're all, they weren't Christians. Most of those people weren't Christians, and we are. So we'd have an easier time answering that question, what do we believe about God? And I hope we all would. But uh, Christianity Today did a survey recently of people who claim to be evangelical Christians. And by evangelical, I mean they believe that the Bible is the word of God, and they believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. But the survey revealed that the vast majority of these professing Christians believe in some kind of heresy. And what is heresy? Heresy. Well, it's an opinion or a belief that differs from historically accepted doctrine. So it's it's kind of outside of the bounds of what we would say is orthodox. <clears throat> and that doesn't mean orthodox is in the denomination, but just uh, being in right line with our historical faith. And so the survey exposed that many of the heresies that uh, Christians believe are ones that have actually been dealt with and have been dismissed. Thousands of years ago, not thousands, hundreds, excuse me, hundreds of years ago in church history. And the problem is that most of us are ignorant of these beliefs. We don't even know that we have them, and we don't know that they're wrong. So Michael Horton's point is right. It's vital for us to know what we believe and why we believe it, okay? And this is nothing new. He didn't make this up. I just use him because I happen to like what he says a lot. But uh, he's a student of church history, and he knows that this this has been the goal of the church since the very beginning. Every single one of the New Testament writers shared this same goal, to help us to know what we believe and why. From the word go, literally almost from Jesus saying, go into the world and make disciples, the church has had to deal with the questions of what is true to our faith. And what is not? And if you doubt this, you can just go read the New Testament again. All right? Go read some of the earliest New Testament books. Most of them are Paul's. Paul wrote half of his books in the 50s AD. So that's just 20 some odd years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Okay, And he wrote these letters, and in every single one of them, he is dealing with some kind of false teaching and some kind of false belief. He's correcting it. He's instructing Christians. He's trying to keep us uh, connected to what we know is true. There has never been an era of the church that didn't have to deal with the problem of false teaching and heresy. That's why we are doing this new series uh, as we lead into the summer, and we're going to look at what we believe and why we believe it. And to do this, we're going to walk through the Nicene Creed. We say it every Sunday during communion. The creed is basically the cliff notes of Christianity. You know, you guys remember cliff notes? I mean, we probably do, I do. In college, that's like how I read. I read the cliff notes. Anyway, um, they're the cliff notes. If you want to know what Christianity is about in short, then look at the creed. It tells us the core doctrine of our faith. It's the main things we believe. And it was developed for this very purpose. So in the 300s AD-ish, a disagreement was uh, brewing over Jesus's divinity. It had been building for years, and it came to a head uh, about mid-century. And there was a man named Arius, who was a priest from Libya, that propagated the belief that Jesus was not actually God. He was still very important, Arius thought he thought that he was definitely the savior he thought that he was the son of God but not equal with God he didn't think that he was eternal he thought that Jesus had been created by God there was another man named Athanasius who was the bishop of Alexandria and he adamantly opposed Arius and said no 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 Jesus is God he is eternal and so the church was divided over this And the emperor at the time was a man named Constantine, you've probably heard of him, and he assembled 150 bishops, and they came together for this Council of Nicaea to find some sort of resolution to this problem, the question of Jesus' divinity. And they argued for two months, and it even broke out into a fist fight at one point. These are all bishops, right? Can you imagine? Wouldn't you love to see that? (laughs) They were probably dressed like this, too. I mean, there would be, like, clothes flying everywhere, it'd be great. It'd be like the Matrix. Anyhow, um, they argued for two months and then eventually the vast majority of them, all but a handful, agreed that Arius was wrong and Athanasius was right. They believed and confirmed that Jesus was, in fact, of the same substance as God, that he was not created by God, but he was sent by the Father. And they developed the Nicene Creed, which we still say today. And it became uh, the foundation for the Christian faith. And what it essentially tells us is who God is, what we can affirm about God, that we believe in one God in three persons. That's the creed. It's broken up into three. One God in three persons. And it spells out the nature of the Trinity as far as we can. And so now today, the creed is something that denominations agree upon across the board this is how we decide if you're a Christian or not if you want to know if you're a Christian go read the creed and if you can affirm everything in it you're a Christian and if you are having difficulty with part of it then we need to talk about it it's no big deal we'll just talk about it that's why we're doing this 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 sermon series it helps us understand what a Christian is the creed has to do with God and what he does. Because that's what our faith is really about. It's about God. It's not essentially about us. It's about him and what he does with us. So, this is what our, our series is going to be on. We're going to be looking at the creed and we're going to break it down into chunks. So that it's digestible. <laughs> and uh, we're going to find that it's all based on scripture. This creed. So let's get into it. We are going to start with the very beginning, as you should. Uh, we're going to start with God the Father. And the first phrase, uh, we got it up there, great. The first phrase tells us this is what we're saying. Okay, it says we believe. We believe. This is a statement of faith that follows what we're about to say here, and that's what creed means. Creed is not just the name of a band from the late '90s and early 2000s, right? Can you take me higher? I promised Trey I would do that today. Thank you. Or arms wide open. Anyway, it's not that creed. Uh, and it's also not just the name of a famous boxing family from the Rocky saga. You remember <laughs> that? Creed. <coughs> creed actually is from the word credo, the Latin word, and it just means to believe. Creed, to believe. This is a statement of faith. But it's not just any statement of faith. It's the the pronoun is very important. It says, we believe. This is our statement of faith. It's not just you. You're a part of a greater whole. Okay, we're not alone in this thing. We're a part of a group of people uh, of professing believers that transcends uh, cultural boundaries and also transcends time. This has been a statement of faith, as I said, since the 300s. So we are a part of a tradition, generations of believers. And then it says, we believe in what? We believe in one God. One God. This is the header for the rest of the creed, okay? The rest of it is going to be unpacking that statement. We believe in one God. God is the foundation of our faith. Everything we believe has to do with him. And specifically, uh, we're talking about the God. And so you see, right off the bat, exclusive claims start to happen when you start stating your beliefs. We're making exclusive claims. Which is not a popular thing in our day and age. Okay? It's not popular to say, oh, well, I believe in this particular thing. Because that then starts to make people feel like, well, what about my beliefs? You know, it starts to sound exclusive. But if we don't do that, then we are going to end up just confused. We're not going to know what we believe and why we believe it. We'll just be confused and we won't really have any answers. And it will have vast implications for our lives, all right? This is, what we're dealing with doctrine here, and there's this kind of false idea out there that doctrine is not practical, that it actually doesn't apply to your everyday life. You know, people sometimes say that, oh, that's you're just getting into theology, can't we just talk about something practical? And that is nonsense, so you can just tell that person, we are talking about something practical, okay? Theology and doctrine are infinitely practical, Everybody up there on that screen that we listened to was using theology, whether they knew it or not, and whether it was good theology or not. It was still theology. Theology is just understanding God, knowing God. And so they are stating their beliefs about God. So all of us do this all the time. It's something that we do in our lives, and it impl- it excuse me, it impacts everything about our lives. So we believe in this God. We're saying we believe in one God. If you have ever studied any religion, uh, if you did an undergrad, even if you took kind of a, you know, world religions course, you may have heard that they, most scholars attribute monotheism to a man named Abraham. You know Abraham. A lot of secular scholars will say Abraham is the beginning of monotheism. He's the guy that came up with the idea for the first time. Because everybody in the ancient world believed in many gods. You know, Just think of the Greek pantheon, okay? Or think of Hinduism as a modern example today. It's, not, it's an ancient example, but it's still going today. The Hindus have millions of gods. Does anybody know how many exactly? No. Okay. 33 million gods. That is true. That's how many gods there are in Hinduism. So just think about that. And think about the implications of that on your everyday life, okay? Think about trying to worry about 33 million gods. Can you even imagine? We have enough time, enough hard time doing it with one god. So they had 33 million. We have uh, one, and that's because many people attribute it to Abraham, uh, secular scholars. But... uh, the funny thing is the religions that actually come from Abraham, which would be the Jews, Christianity and Islam, they all think that Noah, excuse me, I didn't mean that. Not Noah. Adam and Eve. I don't know why, Tom. You made me think Noah. I was looking at him and I was like, he looks like he's ready to go boating. Anyhow. Uh, <laughs> they really attribute monotheism to Adam and Eve, the very beginning. But. We'll just go with Abraham for argument's sake, because uh, that's fine. It doesn't really matter either way. Regardless of whether you believe it's Adam and Eve or Abraham, the important thing to remember is this idea about one God did not come from us. Adam and Eve didn't make it up. Abraham didn't just sit there one day and be like, I don't like worshiping the sun God and the moon God and all these things. I'm just going to go with one. That's not how it happened. The idea of one God was revealed to them. God made himself known. He spoke. So that tells us something else right from the start. This idea that we believe in one God is because we have a self-disclosing God. We have a God that actually speaks into our world. He's not silent He's not somebody that we have to run after, trying to find. He actually comes to us and addresses us. So we've learned something very important already about believing in one God. Why do we believe in one God? Because he told us he is one. That's the truth. He wants to be known, and we really cannot know him in any specific way unless he speaks to us. So what else does he reveal about himself? What do we know about this one God? This is where we start to see the Trinity come into play. We see it in the creed, he sa- we say first we believe in one God and then we say the Father Almighty. The first person, if you will, of the Trinity. And that title, Father Almighty, tells us something about him. First of all, he is primary, the idea of the Father. He's the beginning. It's what we read in Genesis one today. In the beginning, God, dot, dot, dot. That's how the book starts. God is the first one. He is the Genesis. He is the supreme power. Nothing comes before him. No one comes before him. He is the author of all things. And the second thing we learn about this God is that he is relational. Because he is father. Fatherhood is a picture of intimacy and care. It comes against another heresy that you may have heard about called deism. And deism is this belief that God is kind of like a divine watchmaker. All right? He built this very intricate, beautiful thing, the universe, and he wound it up and let it run. And he just sits back and lets it run. And he doesn't get involved with it. That's a deistic view of him, that he's distant and removed. But this idea of father throws that out, because he wants to be in relationship. We're losing lilies. It's okay. But um, many people hold this view. We actually heard it in the video. If you remember, some people said, oh, you know, I'm spiritual. You know, I believe in a God, but I don't really know anything about him. I'm just a spiritual being. They like the idea of a higher force, something out there, but they don't want to have him be personal. We heard it in the, the reading in Acts when Paul is in Athens and he finds an altar to the unknown God. It's this idea of a God who's kind of far off. We don't know him. And that's something that's very popular today because, as I said at the beginning, when you start getting too specific... When you start getting personal, then it starts to kind of force people to make decisions about this God. Then you're not just dealing with it uh, from, your, from you as the starting point. You're not just creating God in your own image, which is what we love to do. This God is a personal God, and he gets to know us personally, and he is specific. And when that happens, people might get offended. So this is why we don't like this today. But what does Paul do? What did he do in that passage in Acts? He talks to the Athenians, and he tells them that he actually knows who this unknown God is. He takes them from the generic and the unknown to the specific and to the known, to the revealed God. That's what he does. He starts preaching to them. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's like, I know who he is. I'm going to tell you all about him. The God who made the world and everything in it The Lord of heaven and earth, he says. He starts getting very specific. He proclaims to them the one true God who's revealed himself to them. And by the end of the sermon, he gets even more specific and he starts talking about the one who was crucified and the one who was risen from the dead. This is the way God is known. He wants us to know him in relationship to hear who he is specifically. And that points us to Jesus. In our passage in John, Jesus invites us even into a deeper understanding of this relationship. Okay, the idea of father. He he refers to God the Father as his personal father, his own father. He says, in my father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. His emphasis is on the relationship, that he's in relationship with this God. And it's always from his point of view as the son. And remember, this is not what Arius thought. This was the whole point of the creed, okay? This is not saying, Jesus is not saying he's my biological father, meaning that I didn't exist and I came from him. I was born out of him. He's referring to him relationally, not biologically, relationally. He is my father and I am his son, And we are in relationship with one another. And the reason why we can see this is what Jesus says about himself. When his disciples are saying, you know, Philip says, just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. I love that. He's like, just, okay, Jesus, you've said a ton. Just show us the Father. That would be enough, you know. And Jesus says, how can you say that? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And he says, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Jesus says it all the time, that he is one with the Father. He doesn't make a distinction between them in terms of uh, their substance, in terms of their divinity. He makes a distinction between them in terms of their person. He's the Father, I'm the Son, but we are one. He's driving home the fact that he is one with the Father. And the thing that he tells us is that we have direct access to God Almighty, the Father Almighty, through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the thing he's telling us is that we are welcomed to him. That's what we're hearing about this Father. This is what we're stating when we're saying we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. That we believe he's a relational God that wants us. And Jesus is the way to him. We're going to unpack more of that, okay, as we go along. The creed has says the most about Jesus. And that's because God actually wants us to know him through Jesus, as Jesus just said. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So the creed says a little bit about God the Father and a little bit about the Holy Spirit and a ton about Jesus. So we're going to spend a lot of time on Jesus. So we'll get there in a little bit. If you have questions, hold on to them because we're going to see why we believe uh, this reality of God but I want to finish with our last section here that God the Father is the maker of heaven and earth of all that is seen and unseen this is driving home that fact that he is the the beginning of all things right he's the source and the power but it also tells us that God is the instigator it's driving home the fact that he's the one that makes things happen it's an incredibly important characteristic about God for us to remember. That God initiates, that He is the one that creates things. Paul described it to the Athenians. He was talking about, oh, He's the one who set the boundaries for everybody's life, He put them in the places where they live. I mean, He's, he's driving home the fact that God is the Almighty God, and He's the one that created everything and everybody in it. And He's telling us that God is actually in control. And it again shows us a God that's not far off. He didn't just wind up the earth and let it go. He is actively involved in it. He is the one sustaining it, keeping it alive, keeping us alive, giving us every breath. This is the God we believe in. And it's because he actually cares for us. He's an initiator. He starts things and he also finishes them. This is good news for you and me. He refers to himself this way in Scripture. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's reminding us that everything is in his hands. That's a, a reassuring picture. This is to uh, give us comfort that there's not some kind of wild variable out there. That's one of the things that was so scary about the Greek pantheon and, and the Roman gods and these you know, polytheistic religions is because the gods were made in our image and they were often very fickle, like you and me. And they would, you know, decide, I just want to screw around with Trey's life today. You know, and they'd just start messing with him. And they would change things, and they would change. They would, one day they'd be for you, the next day they'd be against you. You could never predict what they were gonna do. In the picture that we got, the God that we have, the one who's revealed himself to us, is a God that is the beginning and the end. All things are in his control. And that he is a God that is your father, that loves you, and that he cares for you. It's a reassuring picture of a God that actually is steady and does not change. It tells us he's a God of order. That's what we hear here. We saw it in Genesis 1, a God of order, okay? The picture in Genesis is one of chaos, It said, Moses wrote Genesis, Uh, he wrote, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So this is a picture of chaos. For a person living in the ancient Near East, the sea was an untamable force. The sea was chaos embodied, okay, because it was uncontrollable, it was unpredictable, it was dangerous, the ocean. And we can understand this. We live in the low country, right? Every fall, we're wondering what the ocean is going to do. When that water wants to come, it comes, right? You can't stop it. This is their world. And so this is the picture that God revealed to Moses so he could understand creation. It's a picture of chaos, the sea, this deep, the face of the deep. And Moses goes on and it says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of these waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And we see his power right here with just a word. God conquers darkness like that. All he says is let there be light and there is light. He called the light day and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So where there was once this void, there was no form and just chaos. Just the turbulence of this untamed sea. Now, all of a sudden, there's order. There's day and night. It's the beginning of God establishing order, taking the chaos and bringing order to it. He brings uh, order to all of us, to our lives. It's, again, a promise of the God we believe in. Not a chaotic God, not a changing God, but a God who establishes order. This is the God we believe in. This is why we're proclaiming this. This is why we do it every week. The one who speaks, and it happens. The God who brings everything out of nothing. That's the picture at the beginning of the creed for us. The one who brings order out of chaos. The initiator. And this is all very important for us. Because if you know the story, we very quickly brought chaos back. God established the world, established the universe. Gave us life and gives us the world to enjoy. And we bring chaos back in with our sin. Jesus says it in John 3. He says the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. So that's in our sin we rejected the light that God spoke into existence. We wanted darkness. But praise God, this one true God that we're going to study and learn about for the next few weeks. This triune God, the Father Almighty, the initiator, because he brings order back in through his Son. He's the God that created all things, the Father, the Almighty, and as we'll learn next week when we start studying the Son, he recreates all things through the Son. He brings order back into our chaotic lives He's not a God that is far off. He's not a God that just sits there and lets our lives kind of fall apart. He actually comes after us, and he does his creative work again. He brings something out of nothing in our lives. Where we brought death, he comes in and brings life out of death. He brings light out of darkness again for you and me. This is the good news. This is the God we are going to be learning more about, the God that we know. But now we're going to know really what we know and why, right? That's why we're going to be studying this creed. This is our God, the one true God. We're going to get to worship him more because we will know him more as a result of these weeks. So let's pray now and thank him for who he is. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the one true God that you are uh, our Father, Lord, and that you have made all things and you've made us, and you are a God of order. We thank you for uh, speaking so that we might know you. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, form our hearts over these next few weeks. I pray, Lord, that uh, as we look at the creed, that you would really form us and show us more about yourself, and that would set us free, Lord, And we pray, Lord, that we would be messengers of you to the world around us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.